As we continue our study uh, this morning on 1 Corinthians, we are still on the first issue, the Chloe's household brought to Paul's attention. Paul was a founder and the church planter of this church, and one of the most urgent issue was divisions in the church. And as we know, uh, there are different parties, uh, rivals, arguing against each other and becoming very divisive in the church. And this is the problem that Paul's dealing with. And he has called for unity, the type of spiritual unity that goes beyond the the surface unity or political unity that everyone will be of same mind and same judgment. But last week we thought about actually there is a deeper issue, cause if you will, to create the symptoms. In other words, the division in the church was a symptom of deeper problem. What was the deeper problem? To simply put, it is secularization of the church. Another way of putting it is the Corinthians, majority of them, really exposed the mainstream culture of human wisdom, Greek philosophy. The love of wisdom they brought to the church, church culture. So it in, in many senses, as I mentioned several times, it is like our days. The lure and attraction and enthralled feelings were eloquence and status. And because of that, they, become, they were becoming groupies. Some, some, according to, some following Paul, some following for Cephas. Apollos. So secularization, becoming uh, subtly smeared and influenced by the worldly culture, worldly values, is actually the root problem of Western Christianity as well. So before we delve into the text itself today, I want to kind of bring up this the tendency or slippery slope, if you will. And once you step onto that slippery slope, and it's a downhill. And it, it's easier. It gets easier to go into that slope. And the first one in, in that slope is lack of God-centeredness. If we don't have a God-centeredness in our church. It doesn't matter how much we are trying to get busy with what we're trying, what we're supposed to do. By default, I know, and the scripture tells us though, and then church history tells us, it's going to be man-centered. It's going to be evaluated and assessed in light of what 
our five senses tell us. And this is the, the essence of worldly wisdom, human wisdom. I need to remind you again, the knowledge itself. The knowledge is a gathering of truth. All truth are God's truth. There's nothing, no truth that came apart from God. So knowledge is gathering of truth. But knowledge itself is a raw data, in a way. So wisdom is a right use, right interpretation of knowledge. And if you take God out of the center, and you become the center of the universe, all these truth and knowledge are interpreted, are applied by human standard. What man thinks. And that's why we ought to be careful about uh, secularization of the world. So what does it mean to be God-centered? If you ask. And God has revealed himself. And there's nothing that we can really sit down and try to find out who God is. And character of God is the more dangerous than anything else. All the new age stuff came out of all that. God has revealed himself uniquely. This is a special revelation. Why is it a special revelation? Just looking at the nature and beauty of God, one can assume, one can know the existence of God. There's no way that this can just, just happen but out of mere coincidence. There is an intelligent design behind it. That's a general revelation. Everyone feels awe when there's a beauty of the the nature. But special revelation is, unless God specifically reveals himself, there's nothing that we can really know. The message of the cross, the glory of the cross is that way. The character of God, attributes of God is that way. The God-centeredness is scripture-centeredness. Do we have high view of God? That also means, do, you, do we have high view of Scripture? Open your eyes and be watchful in social media also too. That you will hear more and more the people interpreting the Bible that... Um, Man is the center, rather than difficult passages. Maybe, how do we how do we receive that? Rather than the what John Stott calls it a uh, a priori predecision, predetermined submission, a priori decision, a submission to the scripture, authority of the scripture. So let's be mindful about our need. For God-centered. The consumer-oriented church is all about the man-centeredness. And they say, how does it serve me? What, is, what do I get out of this? Number two, if we miss that, there is no center that is continually unchanging and clearly defining. We have lack of discernment. It leads to careless openness to worldly wisdom 
and values. Once again, it's not the truth. Christians should never become uh, anti-intellectualism. Because all truth are God's truth. But the wisdom is an interpretation and use of that. And it's a, a lot of things are murky and gray. If there is no center, the lack of discernment follows. And lack of discernment leads to careless openness. And number three is it leads to the lack of vigilance. And the lack of vigilance is basically it leads to a, a ripple effect of subtle worldly influence. You know what ripple effect is, right? So if you throw a stone in the middle of the pond, and there is a first circle, but the ripple effect is there's another ripple. Go further and further. So one who grew up in Christian church, Christian home, might not think that I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe the existence of God anymore. But the ripple effect is, uh, maybe I like this human wisdom. Maybe the test speaker is really right. Maybe there is another way to God than Jesus. Maybe this whole God thing is flawed, some man created. Maybe I don't need God. Maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe there is no heaven and hell like that. Church never never decided by one overnight to become consumer-oriented. We ought to be Reaching the world. How do you reach the world? Oh, there are seekers who doesn't understand. Let's make it friendly for them. Oh, we, let's not become offensive. Let's not talk about sin that much. It becomes like that. And lastly, it leads to a spiritual lack of spiritual hunger. When it leads to gradual apathy to joy in God, joy in God becomes such a foreign concept. So we still want to gather together. What happens? In those churches, Western, I mean the Western Europe, um, already have gone through that. You need another program to make it interesting. Let's have a couple's dance night. Let's have youth night. Let's have a movie night. Let's have a bingo night. Let's have a fried chicken night. And some churches actually closed the church and kept the fried chicken. This is a true story. I I don't have the data to give you citation on that. A lot of those dead churches. And when you go to Europe, it's a beautiful church. And no one really meets and gathers anymore. So in that, in that light, today's message is important for us to continually retain the saltiness in the following, the vision God has given us. Our vision is to be the church that God designed, God envisioned for us, to be a transforming community. 
the question that we're asking this morning is, in what ways does God's counterintuitive choice show God's centeredness? In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for consider your calling. Paul has expounded uh, the word of cross, cross being folly, being, being moronic and silly and foolish to the wisdom seekers. It doesn't make sense. And to, um, to the Jews, it's just offensive, stumbling block. The literal word is scandal. But to those who, of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to say, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, weakness of God is stronger than man. There is, I mean, this is a figurative language. In the, in the side of man-centered world, Something looks foolish what God has done. That foolishness is as greater and powerful and wiser than man in actuality. And he gives a case in point. And his evidence and uh, illustration is none other than Corinthian Christians themselves. Consider for you, for consider your calling. This is not calling for your vocation, God's will for your strength, anything like that. It's God's sovereign, effectual calling. And in other words, irresistible grace. When God calls, it's not a mere invitation. God wakes us up from spiritual sleep. God touches our heart. God opens the eyes of our heart. And suddenly, the foolish message of the cross makes sense. I need this kind of forgiveness. I need my Savior. Jesus died on the cross. All of a sudden, from the depth of your heart, it begins to respond to that. That's the saving grace. For consider your calling, brothers, and then he goes, if you consider, you will find this out. Because it's so obvious. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, Corinthians were average, ordinary people. Historically, we know that the Corinth was a colony, Roman colony. Then um, typically what happens is the people who were free from sl slavery and they bought their way out or they become Roman citizens flocked into these colonies. And Corinthians, because of the economy, because of wealth, because of so much of overflowing culture, and sports games, it's must game every other year. And the historians tell us that 
close to two-thirds of the population were former slaves who became Roman citizens. And it is, you know, this passage is very famous. Um, but we should not, must not misread it as not any of you were wise according to many, which means majority of them didn't have a really fanciful background whatsoever. Well, there are some, for example, Crispus was member. He was the synagogue leader. And then Sosthenes, I have a hard time pronouncing that word. Sosthenes replaced him and he became a Christian. Um, there are some people who tend to be so much wealthy. And Chloe might, might be a very wealthy person. Uh, but other than that, every, everybody was average, Joe. It's like our, our church. Thank God, God I, I, I'm grateful for each one of us. And our church is uh, vibrant in a way that's supporting and helping each other. Just the fact that um, no senator, no, no billionaire, uh, no people who have noble birth, like, you know, son and daughter of European king or something. <laughs> Typically, we could identify with this. So one would ask questions like, why would God choose that? I mean, when you think about um, like it's some kind of a Green Beret mission or the SEAL team, um, when they describe what, how, the process of their going through this, and they're wanting to select the best, the cream of the crops. Why God? God's choice is counterintuitive. And one would think that, why would you want to choose those losers? And even the 12, 12 disciples, many of them were uneducated and fishermen. And there were exceptions like Apostle Paul uh, among the apostles. But God's choice is counterintuitive. You know what this opens up for us? Understanding of how God works. Understanding of God's character. So when God chooses, His choice, His election is absolutely free from the choosee. Those whom God chooses. It's not because we have some characteristics or qualifications that God liked that he chose us. God chooses us completely free from our qualification. 
And some of us are actually saying that, like you know Moses when he was called, and I, there's nothing I can do. I, I mean, I, I don't even qualify. That disqualification is the qualification of God's calling. So let's remember that. God chooses counterintuitively. Number two, God chose the foolish and weak to shame the wise and strong in the world. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So here's the reason why God is doing this. God is after destroying the pride and arrogance of human wisdom and human strength and human power. One might think that, is God insecure? Is is God jealous of us? Um, Let's be mindful. Let's be, I mean, think through the adult way of, you know, just naturally think through this. God created heaven and earth. There is no limit for God's power. There's nothing that God feels difficult about. God knows everything. This omnipotent, omniscient characteristics and attributes of God, even, even those things will give us, no, it's absolutely not right, that God is not insecure, God is not jealous. So what is it for? God is actually doing this for our own good. He is getting rid of all the obstacles in our ways to become self-blinded so that after the blockage that we may see the reality of our need, our need, and the greatness of God. And this is the, the tricky stuff the typical uh, non-Christians find. Because it's too simple. There's nothing that you, you can really boast about. And you begin to say, oh, after all, I went to these, this, this college and I, went, I accomplished this and this. I became uh, this and that. To God, unless we are stripped away and that really see our utter need, we will not pursue God. We will not see our need for salvation. And even every day, we will not see our need for God's help. So it's usually trials and difficulty strips away. And even in in human history, I think we know that the vast majority of whoever is the smartest, whoever is the richest, very few of them were Christians. 
So watch this. When, when God gets rid of all the obstacles, when we begin to see, we begin to see the message of the cross, the word of cross, you know, glorious or powerful, God's power and God's wisdom. And unless God reveals to, to, to us, unless God has mercy on us, we're going to be continually blinded by our own arrogance, our own self-reliance. But as the church, this is the consensus that we have. Yes, not by might, not by my power, says the Lord. The church needs to depend on God. That's the evangelical church's confession, at least on the paper. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor who became a preacher um, and became so influential because he was man of ahead of his time. What he wrote, and I'm going to share this, he wrote it probably about 60 years ago, but as if he's writing it today. Um, his words are so penetratingly powerful. And relevant. He writes, We Christians often quote, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And yet in practice, we seem to rely upon the mighty dollar and the power of the press and advertising. We seem to think that our influence will depend on our technique and the program we can put forward and that it would be the numbers and the largeness, the bigness, that would prove effective. We seem to have forgotten that God has done most of his deeds in the church throughout its history through remnants. We seem to have forgotten the great story of Gideon, for instance, and how God insisted on reducing the 32,000 men down to 300 before he would make use of them. We have become fascinated by the idea of bigness. And we're quite convinced that if we can only stage, yes, that's the word, stage something really big before the world, we will shake it and produce a mighty religious awakening. That seems to be the modern conception of authority. What a powerful word. You know, in light of this, actually, I think you have that thought, probably have that thought, and I have the thought, and my confession is, don't we sometimes have this idea? If so-and-so becomes Christian, wow, that everybody will listen to him and many will become Christian. I don't know who who you have thought. But, you know, people, people are on the, you know, not on the almost good. I mean, I don't even want to mention some of the Christian athletes that almost good, the best of the best. But what, what if Michael Jordan become a Christian and he confess his utter need for Christ and then shares the word of cross the people will begin to understand. 
This is the folly. This is once again the man-centered view that God chooses nobodies like you and me for reason, for his glory, for his might, and his greatness to be revealed. Third and last, God chose the low and despised in the world so that no one might boast in themselves but boast only in the Lord. Verse 29 continues on, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God. I mean, who became to us wisdom from God? Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts and boast in the Lord. Apostle Paul takes the Old Testament passage from the words of Prophet Jeremiah and uses that, interwovens this, this context. And it is namely, Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The message continues to be the same, even for us. Um, When we stop boasting, when we humble ourselves, we begin to experience the fruit of God's wisdom, salvation to begin with. And then he actually opens up even more so, because when you think about wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, those four things. Actually, wisdom from God results in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Righteousness is God's acceptance, our worth. We're worthy enough to be accepted by God. No man can achieve that. Sanctification is God is making us, building us more like him, building to holiness in our lives. Redemption is we are restored to be used by God for his glory. And then some commenters, looking at the three words, that is actually the continuity of God's salvation in each tense, each time. The righteousness becoming justification in the past, then sanctification, God's power being, I mean, saving us from the power of sin and the redemption 
for the glorification. To, I, I, we don't even, we won't even have to, to, to uh, even say, oh, maybe that's it, maybe that's not it. I mean, just knowing that it's itself is good enough for us to realize this, the fruit and benefit of God's wisdom, which was seen as folly to the world, is everlasting, eternal. So in our humility, when we surrender our pride and arrogance, we become useful because it doesn't become about me anymore. We could be free from ourself and it becomes about God and God's glory. Do you realize this? It's not just a the top scholars of our nation. It's not just the billionaires of our world. And Orange County, who owns mansions. It's not just the politicians who are powerful. But even the average Joe, like you and me, can carry this pride and boasting. And as little as we're boasting about our little bank account, our mortgage, the place that we live, city we live, is uh, rated as one of the top safest city in, in, the, in the nation, the best school district. No harm done, and we do that shamelessly, and we somehow mutually accepted that. You know, I, I, I do that all the time on the Facebook post, there's a little bit of boasting of our kids, how well they're doing. I posted a lot of Soren's pictures. I mean, his art, latest art. And I check on how many people like it, how many people comment. <laughs> yes, there's something that nothing wrong with that. But check this out. Unless that boasting is killed within us. Unless we experience brokenness before the cross. We will not feel the need for God today. We will wait for some kind of a devastating disaster. Don't do that. You and I need God in God's mercy. As, as much as we need water in the desert. And that's why Martin Luther, during Reformation days, he understood this. And he writes, I close with this. Only the prisoner shall be free. Only the poor shall be rich. Only the weak shall be strong. Only the humble exalted. Only the empty filled. Only nothing shall be something. People of God, Crossway Church members, listen to me. It's not that we are prideful and arrogant about we finally got it. This is the right stuff we believe. Other churches are not doing well. This is arrogant. We are to surrender that pride. 
as much as all other things, whether your status or your bank account, your job, your career, your accomplishment, academically and and career-wise, surrender them all and say, God, I need you. I will boast in the Lord. In the Lord doesn't mean that I am Christian and I'm boasting this. God blessed us. God is useful. Nothing like that. Boasting the Lord. Boasting of the Lord rather than boasting about yourself. Let's do that. Only the humble will be able to see the joy of God present, overflowing, refreshing our heart today. Only the thirsty will taste the living water. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that we need. We pray for spiritual renewal in this month as we anticipate for the altar to retreat. And we pray for your mercy and grace that you will humble us and be gracious unto us. That you might open the eyes of our heart. Yes, Lord, we will boast only of the Lord, not about ourselves. We pray all these things in the name of our sovereign God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.